Cancer Pants Podcast gives voice to cancer thrivers and caregivers from all walks of life. In this podcast, we'll have conversations exploring the thoughts, feelings, and experiences with those who journey with cancer. I'm your host, Rochelle Trudeau. I'm a cancer thriver of 12 years, and I believe that sharing stories is a vital part of our healing journeys. The storytelling in this podcast is meant to encourage, comfort, and provide insight for anyone who journeys with cancer. Welcome to Cancer Pants. Angela is such a beautiful human being with an incredible amount of compassion and patience and insight. And I'm super grateful, Angela, that you're here today to chat with me, to have a conversation about, um, yeah, about your journey, your experience um, as a cancer thriver. So thank Thank you for being here. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So you sent me, um, I wanted to start off this conversation um, with you, um, asking you to read um, a poem that you wrote. You sent me these poems and I read them and I was just, I'm just so floored by how much I connected with them and the experiences that you share in this, in these work, in these works. So if you wouldn't mind just beginning our conversation by reading The Flowering Vine, would that be okay with you? Sure, you got it. Okay. Okay. The Flowering Vine, A Woman's Strength. Given time, I can strangle stones. My green tendrils seeking purchase in tiny cracks, clinging to rough walls as my roots grow deep, Grab hold, stay. Mine is the strength of endurance. Wind may blow, but it cleanses me. Sun may bake, but it feeds me. Rain may drown, but I drink deeply. And I grow. With subtle, quiet progress, I thrive. And when I bloom, everybody notices. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> Ooh. thank you. I love the um, analogy to the to a vine and its tenacity to grow. And what stood out to me, and what's standing out to me right now, because I just asked you when before we started this conversation, when you did you write this poem? Yeah, I wrote this sometime before cancer. Let's see. Yeah. I tend to date these. I wrote it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, that's the wrong poem. I'm sorry. That's okay. Vine, vine. It, it's dated 2003. So I had cancer the first time in 2006. Wow. So three years before you had this, you kind of came into cancer with this, I, um, these uh, the, the the thought and the belief of your strength that your strength ha- is of endurance. I guess and, I did. And with subtle, quiet progress, you thrive. Yeah. If, and if, if, I could have sworn when I read this that this is you were talking about going through a cancer journey. So <laughs> I love it. I think it's wonderful that you already had shared these these words before that. Thank you. So you were diagnosed in 2006 and there was something really special happened <laughs> to you already. Yes. Can you share, why don't you share a, um, a little bit about your, your cancer bio with us? <laughs> okay. Um, when I was diagnosed, I was also 36 weeks pregnant. Hmm. So first time, only time I've been pregnant. I was so excited. This was a a baby we had wanted for a while and we didn't conceive immediately. So when we did, it was a pleasant surprise and I was all geared up to being a mom. And that's where my thought was. And that's, that's where I want it to be. 
Um, and I, I found the lump by accident one night when I, I was mad about something. And when I took my sweater off my head, um, my arm got caught in the sleeve and I ended up um, snapping free and thumping myself on the, on the breast accidentally. And I'm like, Ooh, that hurt. That really hurt. What is that? So there was a lump that had been there, but I hadn't noticed it until then. And it took about a month to get it diagnosed properly because being pregnant, they don't want to do most tests they would normally do. So ultrasound was about the only thing that was safe and ultrasound made it look like there was an infection, not cancer. There was an infection. The infection had gone around the cancer. So it confused the breast surgeon. And so we were trying different things like, oh, put hot compresses on it. That'll make it go away. Well, it'd become less of a lump, but it was still a lump. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, here, take some antibiotics. This weak kind of antibiotics is safe for a pregnant person. Mm-hmm. And it got a little better, but it didn't get all better. And right. it, it started to hurt more. And I got more and more tired. And I recognized there was something wrong when we took a hospital tour of the maternity facility. And this woman who was expecting twins was due tomorrow was walking around like it's no big deal. And I was having <laughs> to stop and rest at every opportunity because I was completely worn out from it. Mm-hmm. And I was a month away from my due date and she was due tomorrow with twins. And I'm like, <laughs> there's something really wrong with me. What's going on? Mm-hmm. So I went in for surgery because we thought it was an abscess, not impossible, just unusual. And we thought it was some benign situation caused by pregnancy hormones. So while I was sedated, the breast surgeon opened me up, recognized it was cancer, sent it to the lab, got it confirmed, performed a lumpectomy. So I went in for one surgery and woke up for something else. Wow. So you basically woke up with the news that you had been diagnosed and treated for breast cancer. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. And, and while, so- while you're 36 weeks pregnant. <laughs> yes. And I didn't know whether to refer to cancer in the present tense or past tense. That really bothered me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, wait, I was a cancer survivor while I was sleeping. Or I was a cancer I was a cancer patient while I was sleeping. Now I'm a thriver. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it, it meant changes. It meant yeah. they induced for the baby to come early because yeah. they needed to get me into treatment as soon as possible. And I'm like, oh why goodness. can't you just wait till the baby comes? It's only a few extra weeks. And they're like, Nope, we're sorry. And wow. what I learned after the fact is there were some very good reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this scale, and I forget the name of the scale. I know it goes from a, a one to a nine, and it's measuring how rapidly the cells divide and how yeah. misshapen the cells are. And yeah. nine is the worst. And yeah. my score was nine out of nine. Like yeah. everything that could have been aggressive and wrong and mean about this cancer was connected to mine. Wowee. So, I, yeah. So go um, ahead. I, I also tested positive for lymphovascular invasion, which means mm-hmm. that it was potentially escaping the breast and moving through the bloodstream or the lymphatic system to infiltrate other parts of the body. So I was like this close to jumping from stage two to metastasis stage four. Um, okay. So treatment was, was good. I, looking back, I'm not sorry it went the way it did, but at the time it was devastating. It meant right. I was not able to breastfeed. And that mm-hmm. was something that was extremely important to me at the time. Yeah. And it, it felt like cancer was the thief that took and took and took. And that was a big one that took me a few years to get over. Yeah. So a week later after that surgery, you were a mom. Yeah. It was 10 <laughs> days. I was diagnosed March 3rd, became a mother on March 13th, started chemo March 30th. Talk a little bit about what your emotions were at this time, like what, what was, what did that look like over those first few weeks? The first day I remember being in shock and being (laughs) sad. And my, my dad and stepmom had come up to Austin to be with me for the surgery that turned into the surprise lumpectomy. And I remember feeling grateful that I had family there, but I also couldn't (laughs) wait for them to leave because I just Mm -hmm. wanted to go home and grieve quietly with my husband and not have to feed anybody else or entertain or think about anyone but me. Um, Yeah. I sort of withdrew into myself. And, and then the next 
10 days were an absolute whirl of activity. I mean, first of all, they're talking about delivering a baby early at 37 weeks instead of 36. And apparently 37 weeks is this magical point where the lungs start to develop enough that their risk of respiratory problems diminishes if their lungs Mm -hmm. are sufficiently developed at 37 weeks. So we had to get a test for that. Um, Had to do an amniocentesis with a high-risk pregnancy doctor. And it became very clear that you have pregnancy specialists and you have oncology specialists and the two fields don't really overlap because you don't typically have enough pregnant cancer patients to get used to working with them. Yeah. So everybody was nervous. And I remember I had to remind the breast surgeon for the surgery that turned into the lumpectomy. I'm like, you've got to elevate my hip on one side. Otherwise it depresses the heart and your heartbeat slows down mm-hmm. and it causes complications. That's specifically a pregnancy thing. And I had to tell the doctor that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Goodness. So it, it's like it created this extra burden that I had to advocate for myself to make sure that yeah. all the things were taken care of. At the same time, I don't know what all the things are. And I'm suddenly learning medical terms and mm-hmm. getting an education in how things work. And I was very unfamiliar with hospitals at the time. And yeah. It was a lot to take in. Right. Oh, and, so, and then work. I was in the middle of a major upgrade of computer stuff at work. Mm-hmm. We're right on the edge of, of flipping the switch and getting the consultants in and, and making a lot of major changes. And it sped up the timetable because I expected to go out from my job at 40 weeks. And instead I'm going out at 37. And so suddenly I'm making calls and notes and meeting with people to get everything lined up so it could proceed without me while I was away. Wouldn't it be nice if, if every birth plan went as planned? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think any of them do. (laughs) And none of them do. (laughs) I really Um, like to plan. It was hard having so much. Yes, I know this. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine for you it would be very difficult. Um, So when you finally Mm -hmm. did get this baby home and you were there, um, what was, you know, what was that journey like of balancing out cancer treatments and, you know, being a brand new mom? The mom part was great. Um, Yeah. I got one week to just be a mom after the baby was born. And then I had to find transportation to get to various places for tests that you you do before chemo. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was tough because I wanted to just stay home with the baby. And instead, I'm I'm making arrangements with friends to look after him, friends and family. Um, Between my mom and my stepmom, they took turns coming out to stay with me for a week at a time. So Mm -hmm. that was helpful to have another experienced mother in the house to help show me what to do. Because, you know, it's a baby. And I take it home. I'm like, I can't believe the hospital let us leave with this little person, this tiny life. It's so fragile. Am I going to break it if I hold it wrong? (laughs) Um, And so there's all that paranoia of how do I look after this little person? But I tell you what, having a, a newborn in the house, a baby in the house while going through chemo, was awful because my sleep was ravaged, but it was wonderful because this little person would do things for the first time constantly. Like, Oh look, he's smiling. And it's two months, you know, Oh, he's sliding and he means to smile, not just because it's gas. Oh, that's so precious. Right. And (laughs) that was neat. There were times where we just stand at the crib and stare at the baby and smile and have that moment of deep happiness because there was this new life. And my husband was like, please go through with chemo. Please get through treatments. Don't leave me. We have an infant. Please don't leave me. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. Exactly. So there was this, oh man, I can, I can just, the way that you describe that, I can just picture the two of you being there and you having these feelings of I'm, I have to get through this, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm a mom and I can't leave this baby. And your husband, like, you have to get through this. (laughs) And vacillating between these really high highs of being a a new parent and then Mm -hmm. really low lows of like, and then we still have to go through this. So there was that, that a vacillation of emotion, you know, but that you had these really high highs to kind of get you moving through. The high highs helped a lot. Um, there's a picture of me feeding the baby his first meal of solid food, and my hair is just starting to grow back from chemo. Yeah. And so he and I were bald at the same time. Aww. You can see that we have the same shape of our heads. 
and my my hair felt just like the baby's when it finally grew back that yeah. never had been cut completely soft and downy mm-hmm. feeling both of us were the same so we thought that was funny yeah that's a great post chemo hair feels so good it really does feel like baby's hair it's so nice um so you also had mentioned to me that you had your neighbors helping you so talk and in family and you know just different kinds of people talk to me about the people around you and your their relationship with this journey that you were going on okay um that was one of the most amazing things that happened during treatment was how different people came together to support us um i felt a little uncomfortable telling people for the first time that I was going through chemo because I didn't want to come across as some attention grabbing, sorry, attention grabbing person. I was just living this really difficult extended period of misery and, and it would come up in conversation, especially if I wasn't wearing a wig and I was obviously bald. Um, And so people were very sympathetic, which was nice. And they're like, Oh, is there anything I can do? And well, it was hard for us to get out to get meals, and neither one of us had the energy really to cook that much. So that was the number one thing people did for us. They brought us food. And it was amazing how many people got involved. I had mm-hmm. coworkers I didn't know very well who would volunteer to bring something. <clears throat> this one, one couple went shopping for us at the grocery store. I just had a short list of things, and they brought the groceries over, and they wouldn't let us pay them back. <clears throat> I had a girlfriend who would bring us supper on the nights of chemo when we really didn't have the energy to do anything. And I always got sick from chemo. So I would feel squishy and, um, and then my husband would be hungry. And so it was nice, except for the time she forgot. That was, that was pretty bad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we had nothing planned because we were expecting her to bring something and then she forgot and didn't come. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, but the rest of the time it worked out. Can of chicken soup probably came out of the cupboard or something. (laughs) Something like that. And we we had, we we had bought a new house. Um, and the people at the sales office heard about it and they brought us lasagna. So I had coworkers and, and like all these friendly acquaintances that I barely knew, it seemed, who were like, what can I do? And they, and we ended up with a lot of lasagna. Um, and I remember yeah. thinking how, how many similarities there were between the, the chemo journey and baby journey. Because you, yeah. you get some of the same advice, like prepare meals in advance, stick them in the freezer, um, try to expose, limit your exposure to germs. Yeah, yes. Um, you have all these rules, a lot of rules. And you have yes. a lot of rules when a baby's in the house too, right? Exactly. It's, you know, you have to keep things clean so that you guys supported each other in your lower immunity <laughs> stage. <laughs> um Oh, I was just thinking about how, how with me, and I'm just going to throw in this little, this little blurb here, people brought over, I went through a different type of meat every chemo. Cause before that I was vegan and raw and then chemo made me really want protein. And so <laughs> I had my friends bringing over like, well, we did beef one chemo and I had six chemo. So we did all these different <laughs> cuisines and they would bring over them the, the pork or the shrimp or the whatever. It was really great. And I remember getting down to the last one and I remember just thinking, this is it. I've made it this far, you know, um, I'm in shrimp now, you know, I'm eating, (laughs) I'm eating seafood. I've made it to seafood and this is almost over. And the first line of this poem that you wrote, awakening of the tiger woman, this is the other poem that I'd like for you to share with us. But the first one is the first line is one more to go. Mm-hmm. Only one. Okay. So I wonder if you might read this and then we'll chat about it after you read it. You betcha. One more to go. Only one. I'd do it tomorrow if they'd let me. So close. I can taste it. Almost done an end to the poisons that get me. Yesterday's sorrowful tears, bitter in fears and pain, are tasting sweet today. Anticipatory joy. Soon, soon my body will return to something familiar. It's become a stranger with 
striped fingernails and thinning eyebrows, sudden fatigue and nausea lurking in random moments, night sweats and mangled taste buds. Did we kill the nasty cancer? Was it worth the months of chemical hell? Only time will tell me, slowly. Father, time befriend me. Let me ask for 50 years if it's gone. Yes, that's it. Let me ask for 50 more years if it's really gone. I can do a lot of good in 50 years. I can help a lot of people. Hold hands while another's tears grieve cancer fears. Create comfort by sharing my story. In this heart beats a tiger woman. Sometimes tired and sometimes sad. Focused on survival, protecting her cub. In this stranger of a body with bloody noses, dry skin, numb fingers, numb toes, the mind emerges intact from a chemical-induced fog. I'll submit to serving as pincushion, but I refuse to be a victim. One more treatment left to go, only one. I've survived the surgeries and the complications, the side effects and the sympathetic stares. I've survived the well-meant bad advice from loved ones who care. I've survived simple sickness turned scary with hospital trips because nothing is simple now. I will continue to bounce back. I will continue to get well. Without hesitation, I will hold my bald head high on strong shoulders and plan my life thriving for the next 50 years. I don't care why this happened. I only care how it has added to my appreciation of everything in this world that is beautiful and selfless and compassionate. I will emerge from this long, dark tunnel of treatment stronger than ever, tiger stripes in my nails, loving fully, protecting my cub, rejoicing that my mate still kisses my lips and rubs my fuzzy head and sees the beautiful woman I am. Hmm. So you must have written this, right? You written, you wrote this right before your last chemo. Yes, um, definitely during treatment. And the the reference to tiger stripes in the nails is because chemotherapy affects the the growth of fingernails. Mm-hmm. And so every two weeks when I get chemo, it would like slow down the growth or change it somehow. <laughs> so I ended yeah. up with these interesting looking stripes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I wanted something to express that determination to thrive and get past this and to I knew it was changing me but it wasn't going to crush me and there is something I I forgot to mention about the the people who came together to help because it wasn't Mm -hmm. just people bringing food it was also the people who listened I mean what was hard about having a baby is that I didn't have the energy to visit with people and Mm -hmm. it was really difficult to have anyone over to the house. It was difficult to have a conversation. It was difficult to go places because at any moment the baby would wake up and the whole world would suddenly revolve around the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was isolating because it wasn't a good time for anybody to come over and sit with me or talk to me. But I found my tribe with a group of other cancer survivors that the, the local resource place put together. And it was so neat. I got to attend their very first meeting. Um, and I don't know if I should say the name of them. Please do lift them up, lift them up. They do. They do the most amazing work. (laughs) They do. This was the the birth of the pink ribbon cowgirls under the umbrella of the breast cancer resource center. And it was so amazing to be with other women with children who were also dealing with cancer. Either they had been through it already or they are going through it now. Um, And it was great to talk to other people who are struggling with issues of fertility and childcare and toddlers (laughs) Um, who are also coping with chemo and juggling schedules. And some of them were stay-at-home moms and some of them were working moms. And um, it was nice to have that variety of people. And I felt not alone in a a visceral level that I couldn't wrap my head around consciously before I could talk to the other humans who were living this. And that was amazing between the the friends who would write back after the email notices I'd send out and the the friends who would send cards and the, the other women at the pink ribbon cowgirls. 
it was like this tapestry of support came together and was woven from all these different players who contributed in different ways. And that made Mm -hmm. a tremendous difference. That's a beautiful way to describe it. Yeah. Thank you for lifting up their work and I didn't know you were an an OG pink ribbon cowgirl. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, they were great. Um, I I remember being in some of those luncheons and meeting up with people, and it was almost like you didn't have to know them because you were part of this tapestry already. You're like, oh, here's my people, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the women who were there with their kids. And I was thinking, and I didn't have any kids at the time. And I was thinking, I don't know how they could possibly get through this with kids. And I remember saying that out loud. And one of the moms said to me, and this completely kind of blew my mind. She said, I don't know how I would get through this without them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Whoa, perspective, (laughs) you know, because it is, it's, um, you know, we're given, I I believe that we're, we're given in some way, um, on our journeys, the things that we need to go through when we go through them for a reason. And then whether it's for those children or for our own personal, you know, but every, what I love you're saying about community is that everyone around us is affected by our story. It's not just us wearing the cancer pants, right? Maybe we're wearing (laughs) the cancer pants, but it's everyone around us who will never forget that they brought you lasagna or that they held your hand or that they took care of your baby for you or that they sat at a table with you and everyone shared their intimate details of their own personal journeys. And Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so beautiful to me that cancer is not about just one person, but it's community. And it's such a teacher. And tell me if you agree with me or not. Like, do you believe cancer is a teacher? I think cancer absolutely presents us with opportunities that we can learn from. Um, I learn new skills on how to coordinate volunteers because of cancer. Yeah. That's one skill. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> and it's, it's an important skill. I don't yeah. think most of us know how to ask for help. We're not comfortable asking for help. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's hard when you're in a position where you need help to accept it. And it's, it's like a special frame of mind you have to adopt to say, to give yourself permission to let someone look after you in some capacity for a time. And, and there's sometimes there's a penalty for accepting the help. For example, my mom would come <laughs> up each time I had chemo. She, I had chemo on Thursday. She would come on Thursday and she'd stay through Sunday. And every time after she left, we're looking for our kitchen things because she would put things away in the wrong places. Of course. (laughs) Where she felt like they belonged and not where they act. She wouldn't ask us, where does this actually go? She's upgrading your systems. Come on. She's, she's trying to come on. (laughs) And whereas I, I had an aunt who flew in from California to look after me and I'm in Texas and I was, amazed anyone would spend money on airfare for my benefit Mm. and my aunt would stay up but she would handle the late night feedings which was amazing and so she would let us sleep and it was so great I loved having her there and if she didn't know where something went after it was clean in the kitchen she'd lay out a towel on the counter and put the unknown things together on the towel I'm like oh that's how to do it yay (laughs) so I learned how to be a better guest from from my aunt right and then and then in the poem, you say, okay, so here's another thing that's like people really want to help you, right? And you say, I've survived the well-meant bad advice from loved ones who care. Oh, my goodness, that you definitely have to survive that. I actually still, in my email, have a folder of people sending me magical cures to uh-huh. cancer and I could barely write them back and that I just put them in this folder. And I was like, maybe someday I just hit my microphone. 
maybe someday I'll go and have a laugh. But yes. it was, um, it is a skill that you learn how to just go, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Then let Interesting. It go. And your, your right. aunt died from cancer. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need yeah. to hear that now. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a little camaraderie we have here, but that sometimes people don't know what to say. Yes. And that actually applies to lots of people. They don't know what to say. And I think that's another area of learning that we as Americans need more mm. of is how do you process grief? How do you support someone who's going through grief? Yeah. And yeah. when someone's going through cancer treatments, they are grieving. They're yeah. grieving that loss of innocence in the life before, because now they're embarking on the life after, and they're not used to it yet. Yeah. And how do you give them the space to express themselves? And, and what's hard is that people are so uncomfortable with other people's grief that they'll cut you off and they'll yell, throw a platitude at you, trying mm. to get you to cheer up and feel better. It'll be okay. Mm. <clears throat> and I'm like, I, I don't care that I'll be okay eventually. Right now, I can't feel my fingers and toes. But right. it makes me nervous to <laughs> yeah. drive with the baby in the car yeah. when I feel like I've just let go of a freezing container of ice cream and everything's right, right. You know, or it changes from day to day a moment to moment which side effect would attack and familiar things that used to be comforting like soda suddenly tasted like sand and I couldn't right. tolerate soda anymore so it's like all these right. things that used to be helpful are gone and so yep. there's a, a lot to yep. adjust to and then just as you get used to something it changes it changes yeah <laughs> it does and you know kind of back to the um the idea of grief and processing grief. I love that because it I really do feel that that chronic illness, cancer, Alzheimer's, um different diseases like this where we, you have to really take care of someone and there is an element of 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 this person coming through and more more often than not hopefully um as we move forward that that this isn't the death disease but that you do end up grieving. It doesn't have to be something that you die from. You can, but it doesn't have to be. I'm trying to say this in a graceful way. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of being graceful. But I think that when we watch, like when our children watch us take care of someone who's sick, or when we are in a church group or a community or like the pink ribbon cowgirls. And we're, we're observing one another's ability to care and be empathetic and present and, and have service, do acts of service. When we have, when we watch that in a community, we then learn how to do that maybe better the next time. And what's concerning and what I think is kind of your point in this country, we're kind of bubbled up and we do everything in this really private way. And we don't walk and a lot, a lot, oftentimes we don't watch our parents care for their parents. We don't want, you know, it's not in everybody's family and it's not something that I think everyone is really comfortable with. There used to be a lot of shame around having cancer, hmm. you know, and I've, I've had people tell me I'm not going to embarrass myself by telling people that I'm sick. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> wow. you know, because that's the story they've been told that losing your hair and having a cancer in, um, in your breasts, which are considered kind of an immodesty, you know, to people. I don't know. I think it's really, I think it's an interesting thing that you bring up that processing the grief and helping each other learn how to do that is really vital. It is. It's important. It's a learned skill too. This is not something that comes instinctively that you get it right when you've never done it before. Um, yeah. It's helping someone process grief is definitely a learned skill and, and you get better at it the more you have to practice mm -hmm. it. Um, Absolutely. My the single most valuable piece of advice I could give to someone who's trying to support someone who's dealing with a difficult situation is to honor their struggle by saying, 
I can't imagine how hard this must be for you. Mm-hmm. And say nothing else. Just let it go that I acknowledge that you're going through something difficult and I'm not going to try to truncate it by giving you advice or mm-hmm. trying to cheer you up. I will let you mm-hmm. experience whatever you're experiencing until you're done with it. And that's right. the best way I can help you. Yeah. And even even learning how to ask someone who's going through something, what is it that you need from me right now? Actually, I you think know? even be more specific because yeah. when people would say, what can I do for you? My mind would go blank and I'd have no yeah. idea. And I'm not yeah. sure what they're capable of and what they have time mm-hmm. for and what they can afford versus how do I match mm-hmm. that with this really long list of things I need. And right. but as if they offer something specific, like, can I clean your house for you? Can I mow your lawn? Right. Can I, can I pick right. up groceries for you one time? If you can set some boundaries about what you're able and willing to deliver, and then they'll mm-hmm. let you know if they want that or not. Um, yeah. Thought- and really keeping it to something that you can do. Yes. To help them. And versus like, have you tried this thing? And that's something that they can do. You know, it's better to say, here's what I can do uh-huh. to help you. Yeah. Yeah. So I interrupted. So, well, I was just thinking, um, our, our hairstylist was a grandmother and she felt so sad for us having a baby and going through cancer that she came on Sundays <clears throat> when she wasn't working She would come to our house every other week and she would mop the floors and clean the bathroom for us and look after Mm -hmm. the baby for a few hours so that we could do whatever. We could go grocery shopping or go to a movie or take a nap. She didn't care. She was just there to give us like four hours of peace on a Sunday. And it was the most beautiful gift. Our hairstyles. And, and you that, can't say no to that as a I new know, mom. Right? <laughs> oh my gosh, I was so grateful. And I realized she got the better end of it because she got to spend time with the baby who was, yeah. you know, too yeah. cute to be annoying yet. <laughs> right. And 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 maybe that was something she needed in her life, you know, and it's, you know, I remember feeling bad when I didn't need help from someone I knew really wanted to give it. And I was, I was sometimes navigating what I could delegate out <laughs> Mm-hmm. for people because I, I, there was something about getting this diagnosis where I was like, this isn't just about me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, some, some things to think about, right. When you are a support person and I don't know if I told you this, but this podcast is every other episode, there's going to be a cancer support person ah. being interviewed. So I love that you brought this in because I kind of want that talking back to each other, right? Like, Here's the survivor, the thriver, survivor situation. Here's the caregiver, cancer person, help, cancer support person mm-hmm. um, story, side of the story. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. And that's, I think it's super important <laughs> and that helpful, is- right, for everyone. Yes. And yeah. that was that was harder. I mean, there was tons of support that showed up for me, but my husband, there was not the same level of support present for him. Yeah. And and I couldn't be that support for him. And so yeah, he was mm-hmm. just sort of dangling out there, getting through day by day. He'd wake up in the middle of the night just to see that I was still breathing because he was so worried about me. Yeah. Yeah. And I interviewed my partner at the time, Julie. Um I interviewed her recently and it was just so enlightening to hear um, the kind of things that she needed as a partner Mm. and um, how important it was that her friends came and took her out, took her dancing or (laughs) took her for a ride on the Velaway or, you know, like took her to do things without me, Mm. you know, without talking about it, Mm -hmm. you know, just to go and have fun like normal and how important that was for the partners to feel seen. Yeah. And yeah. So that's, uh, that's an interesting way, uh, view as well. Well, so I, go ahead. I have ahead. A, one more poem I'd like to read to you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let you do that. Just one second. I want to say one more thing about the poem and then we, and then is it okay if we, if I ask you one more question sure. about the poem you just read? So I love this line. I don't care why this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that? Um, sure. Yeah. It was some people 
would say about their own cancer journeys, they felt like God had challenged them, like he gave them cancer on purpose so they'd learn and grow from it. And I didn't agree with that perspective at all. I didn't feel like there was some purpose behind it. I didn't feel like there was some higher power or greater message. To me, it seemed cruel to think that God would deliberately give somebody cancer just to give them a growing opportunity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt that instead that when severe adversity crossed my path, I had to make a choice to embrace it and grow from it or to let it roll over me. And Mm -hmm. I just couldn't imagine letting it roll over me. And I couldn't identify with people who would just collapse from depression over their difficult situation and just cave to it. Um, So to me, it's like cancer to me is arbitrary and it's going to afflict people who are good people and bad people and all these gray areas in between. And I don't view it as some sort of punishment for some action that you did in your past life. It's just the luck of the draw. And Mm -hmm. it's, to me, it's random and it's unfair and it's uncompromising and unyielding and it's just bad. And it's not my fault that I got cancer. So I don't care why this happened. I don't Mm -hmm. care that maybe I ran through the clouds of the mosquito fog when I was a kid and um, (laughs) maybe I inhaled some chemicals that ultimately led to this. I don't know, but I'm not going to beat myself up for why it might have been or perhaps what caused it because we can't ever really know. Um, I've had the genetic testing. There is not a genetic component in either of the the breast cancer times that I've endured. And um, there's some some family history, enough for people to go, hmm, maybe you should get tested. But nope, there's no definitive link. So it just is what it is. And the why of it doesn't matter. It's what are you going to do with it? Yeah. That's why I like that line because I think (laughs) – so it's so human, like humans humaning, right? Here we are asking why at every stage in the game. You know, my six-year-old is now on another why stage of her game. <laughs> and But it's a deeper why, right? And we just kind of go deeper and deeper with our why, which is why we are so, I believe, as a human race, like so um, diverse and we are curious, our curiosity, and we are individuated and we're growing and changing and it's beautiful, but you can't, some questions can't be answered. Right. And you can spend, like you said, you can spend your energy letting it roll over you or you can move forward and just get through it. (laughs) Yes. Um, so I appreciate that you just kind of said it the way it is. I don't <laughs> care why this happened. I don't. I only care how it's added to my appreciation of everything in this world that is beautiful and selfless and compassionate. And so are you. All those things. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. Would you like to read that poem? Yes. Okay. Um, this is a poem that I wrote when I was nearly done with radiation. So my hair was growing back and it was raining that day. And the radiation, for those who don't know, takes place at pretty much the same time each day, five days a week. So you're constantly going to the cancer center for treatment. And the weather, certain things follow predictable patterns. In the poem, I reference a piece of equipment called the gantry. And that's the machine that delivers the, the radiation. And it moves. So you go on a table and then the machine moves around you to get in the right place to zap what it needs to. Okay, this poem is called Radiation on a Rainy Day. Lazy summer rain kisses pavement as I walk from car to gantry. I know where the shade on any other day will have wandered by the time I leave. Enslaved in the ritual, I brave the rain to enter a room bathed in shadows soft lights, gentle music, and hard science await with a table on rails and monstrous equipment. Today's technicians position my body carefully, referencing doctor's orders. They retreat behind thick walls, watching and listening. Exposed, I cannot hide, 
I must lie very, very still. The gantry responds with alien grace to computer programs tailored to my body, my shape, my former privacy. A buzzer warns a piercing raise, and I lie very, very still, imagining the day when I can leave and stay away. Until tomorrow, I chuckle at people hurrying through cold rain to my exit. Last year, I'd have sported an umbrella, knowing hair would wilt despite ample gel and spray. A smile shines behind my eyes, because velvet fuzz has grown into baby-fine softness half an inch long. Too short to style, this is a different kind of freedom. No need to hurry or worry about umbrellas today. Instead, I slip through the falling sky towards my car, naked face upturned, defiance and acceptance dancing through my thoughts. A moment of optimism catches me, and, with moisture in my eyes, I finally sense a glimpse of sunshine to come. Hmm. Yeah, that like is a good that. one. <laughs> I like the optimism in that poem, but it makes me cry every time. Yeah. And for those of you listening, she didn't send that to me. So that's the first time I heard it. And it, oh man, all the memories are just rushing back so much. <laughs> I can just, so I can just feel the rain and I can on the, on the like, ooh, on the scalp and the fuzzy hair. And it's just so beautiful. And you can see the shadows in that room, you know, and being yeah. held, that feeling of being held by the gantry. And just, I just learning. want to hop off the table and run away and never come back. Yeah. I remember thinking that this was, this was a surrender, like that every day was a new surrender, a new mm -hmm. giving in to what is. I agree with that. It's every day you're making a conscious decision to show up and to stay there. And for get the yourself burned. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It got harder and harder. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> and and about chemo too. There were there were times where I just didn't want to go anymore. Because you know, you start oh, to yeah. feel better and then crash. Yeah. There's another round of chemo yeah. and you feel more like crap and it's yeah. cumulative. So each time is a little bit worse than the time before. And eventually um, my doctor prescribed Ativan <laughs> to help calm me yeah. down. Um, and there yeah. would be times where my husband, you know, like chemo would approach and I'd start getting more anxious before treatment. And after a while, my husband began reminding me, you need to take your Ativan now. You're like, oh, yay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> chemo mm -hmm. drugs. Um, so I want to ask you this question because this is a question I want to ask every person who's journeyed with cancer that comes on to Cancer Pants. Is this experience the hardest thing you've ever done? Yes. Yes. Why would you say that? It lasted so long and mm -hmm. it was hard and it kept being hard in different ways. And even though I, I grew from it, it was hard to go through. I imagine it's like intense physical training when you're preparing to do something difficult, like running a marathon and you've never done it before. Yeah. And you can't just sit it out. It's not going to get better if you don't keep working at it. Um, yeah. And no one can do it for you. Right. Do you believe that it's more difficult than parenting? Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, parenting has been really challenging, but so many things have, I'll end up comparing them to the time I went through treatment for breast cancer and nothing has okay. been as hard as this. And, and there will be times where I was in grad school and I'm working full time years later and, and I'm, staying up till one mm -hmm. in the morning, trying to get my homework turned in on time. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. This feels like I'm in treatment. And I would freak out a little yeah. bit from that feeling. But then it would be over in a couple of days and I would get some rest and I'd feel like myself again. I'm like, that's not so bad. <clears throat> yeah. Even going through cancer the second time was not as hard as going through it the first time. Yeah. And I was going to just, you just segued for me. Thank oh. you. <laughs> Um, well, I don't, I, I want to say that, yes, there was a second time because we kind of mentioned that in the beginning, right? But what I would like to do, Angela, is invite you to come back 
because the second part of your cancer has so much to do with this word that I love, advocacy. Mm -hmm. And advocating for yourself, advocating for the cancer community, um, and the future of cancer treatment. And so I know you've done a lot of amazing work, some of which you just explained to me this morning that we're celebrating. And so I'd love to have you back on if you would please choose to join me again. And um, we'll chat about your second round and also um, really dive deep into some of the work that you've been doing. That sounds great. Thank you. Yay. Um, is there anything that else that you would like to share with the listeners? Any um, wisdom nuggets or uh, just thoughts um, that you feel inclined to share with us? I do have one that there is no one size fits all path to dealing with cancer treatments. And Mm -hmm. I would recommend that people give each other the space to let people choose their path without some sort of emotional penalty. Um, I can remember running across various individuals over time who felt very strongly that their way was the best way. Mm -hmm. And With cancer, with breast cancer, you've got differences of like lumpectomy or mastectomy. And if there's mastectomy, is there reconstruction? Do you go flat? What all these choices? Mm -hmm. And it really irritated me when one person felt like the path she chose was the way everybody else should go to. And I would just remind people that this is not. a a race where you have to pick the right way or else everything else is wrong. This is a race where surviving and being intact is your goal at the end. Kind of like when you have a baby, (laughs) having a healthy baby is the important part, not exactly what your childbirth plan was. That doesn't matter. Not Mm -hmm. not really. And so I feel like it's, it's not that I would say, Oh, you can't make a wrong treatment, but it's, I mean, a, a wrong choice, but it's, it's just acknowledging and giving yourself permission that this is what's right for me and this may not be right for somebody else, but that's okay. Somebody else is not living in my body. I'm living in my body and I need mm-hmm. to learn what I need to learn and get the information I need to make a decision that I'm comfortable with, that I can live with and not regret. So mm. I would, uh, that's one of the best ways you can support somebody, especially when they haven't chosen their surgery path yet is to just let them know that I'll still be here for you at the end, whether you still have breasts or not, whether you have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy or whatever choices you make, it's okay. Right. Because it's hard enough to make those choices without feeling like you're disappointing somebody by making the wrong one. Exactly. (laughs) It's really nobody's business what choice you make, but that if you love someone and you care about them and you want to be there for them, it's that you understand that they're making some really hard choices that are going to affect the rest of their life. And so understanding that first is more important than whatever article you read or whatever surgery you might've had or (laughs) Uh your grandmother or anything. And that it's, it's permission to, Also to those of us who are going through it to permission, a permission slip to not have to listen to all of that (laughs) and to listen to your heart. Yes. And that's another learned skill is learning to ignore the people who are trying to help you in their own way, but Mm -hmm. they're doing it all wrong. And it isn't just loved ones. Sometimes it's the other pink ribbon cowgirl member you've met, or right. sometimes it's someone at a restaurant and you get into conversation, just some casual encounter, mm-hmm. and then they have a really strong opinion and they think, and they yeah. don't understand the damage they do when they don't respect that this is your choice and they try to make yeah. it their choice. And it's also learning that that's coming from a place of their own their own um, fears and their own insecurity around their, their own choices. And, and, you know, that's another human humaning kind of thing. You know, there's just a human humaning and, (laughs) you know, really responding to their own emotions around it. 
And so, you know, I sometimes just say, oh, what, what was your experience like? <laughs> you know, how did you, you know, just kind of throw it back onto them, say, oh, you, you sure have a lot of strong opinion. Why don't you tell me your story? <laughs> that's a really you tactful know. way to handle it. I love that approach. Yeah, that's an idea, right? Well, poetry. Okay. Just, oh, go ahead. Well, poetry was this great outlet for me. And I can remember yeah. being a participant in the Austin International Poetry Festival and attending a workshop. And in the workshop, you had some finite period of time and your goal was to write a poem during that 10 minutes you had or whatever. And I thought it was lovely. And I wrote a poem about cancer. And this woman mm -hmm. came up to me because everyone goes around the table and you read your poems. And she's, she told me it was time to stop. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was volunteering for a, a fundraiser. You know, I was active to do things to support other people dealing with cancer. And she's like, my husband had cancer and he went through this period where he did all this volunteer work. And after a while, you just have to go back to living your own life and move on. She made me feel like I wasn't moving on in the appropriate time because mm -hmm. I was still writing poems to help me cope with the trauma <laughs> of, of my journey. And I'm, I got so mad at her when I thought about it later. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'll move on when I'm ready to move on. And moving on looks right. like one thing for me and it could be different for you. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and then I love that you, that just reminds me of how you jumped at this opportunity to, to be here and sharing your story and how important it is to share your story. Um, oh man, I feel like you wrote that somewhere. Oh, create comfort by sharing my story in, in the, yeah. in the tiger poem, the awakening tiger poem. I can do a lot of good in 50 years. I can help a lot of people hold hands while another's tears grieve cancer fears, create comfort by sharing my story. And that is why I'm doing this podcast because there's so much healing in for one to share their story. And there's so much healing in hearing someone else's experiences. It's tremendous. And I remember how comforting that was to listen to other people's stories, especially when I was in the middle of treatment and I was, just looking for those comparisons. How did the diagnosis come about? How long did it take you to get through it? Um, yeah. And you're saying, hey, you're still alive after this. This is okay. Maybe I can do this too. Um, I remember reading personal stories on Dr. Susan Love's website. And that part of the website, it's all been redesigned since then. So it's gone now. But there were this, these collections of people talking about their experience about when they were diagnosed and what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I took inspiration from reading other people's stories. I felt connected to other people. It's the hardest part about a serious illness is how isolating it feels because typically not everyone else around you is going through this difficult, dramatic period of time at the same time with you. And so when you connect with the other people who are also dealing with that high level of drama mm -hmm. and, and all the emotions that come with it and the roller coaster. Because it's not even that some days are good and some days are bad. It's like every day had good and bad moments in it. And it was exhausting. So it's nice to know that you're not alone. It's not only nice and comforting to know. I feel like it's essential to help you keep your sanity while you go through it, knowing that you're not alone. Oh, what a perfect way to end. You're not alone. And Angela, I really, really appreciate you um, opening your heart and um, sharing your poetry with us today and um, being such an amazing friend. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to our part two. <laughs> Me too. Thank you, Rose. All right. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to Cancer Pants Podcast. All the references and links to information about the guest today can be found in your show notes. Go out and find the joy. Wear the pants. You are right where you belong. Take care.